Seventh Scene, Chapter Four, Part One of No Name. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Lee Paquette. No Name by Wilkie Collins. Seventh Scene, Chapter Four. Part One. When the servants' dinner bell at St. Crux rang as usual on the day of George Bartram's departure, it was remarked that the new parlour-maid's place at table remained empty. One of the inferior servants was sent to her room to make inquiries, and returned with the information that Louisa felt a little faint, and begged that her attendance at table might be excused for that day. Upon this, the superior authority of the housekeeper was invoked, and Mrs. Drake went upstairs immediately to ascertain the truth for herself. Her first look of inquiry satisfied her that the parlour-maid's indisposition, whatever the cause of it might be, was certainly not assumed to serve any idle or sullen purpose of her own. She respectfully declined taking any of the remedies which the housekeeper offered, and merely requested permission to try the efficacy of a walk in the fresh air. "'I have been accustomed to more exercise, ma'am, than I take here,' she said. "'Might I go into the garden and try what the air will do for me?' "'Certainly. Can you walk by yourself, or shall I send someone with you?' "'I will go by myself, if you please, ma'am.' "'Very well. Put on your bonnet and shawl.' and when you go out, keep in the east garden. The admiral sometimes walks in the north garden, and he might feel surprised at seeing you there. Come to my room, when you have had air and exercise enough, and let me see how you are. In a few minutes more, Magdalen was out in the east garden. The sky was clear and sunny, but the cold shadow of the house rested on the garden walk, and chilled the midday air. She walked toward the ruins of the old monastery, situated on the south side of the more modern range of buildings. Here there were lonely open spaces to breathe in freely. Here the pale March sunshine stole through the gaps of desolation and decay, and met her invitingly with the genial promise of spring. She ascended three or four riven stone steps, and seated herself on some ruined fragments beyond them full in the sunshine. The place she had chosen had once been the entrance to the church. In centuries long gone by, the stream of human sin and human suffering had flowed, day after day, to the confessional, over the place where she now sat. Of all the miserable women who had trodden those old stones in the bygone time, no more miserable creature had touched them than the woman whose feet rested on them now. Her hands trembled as she placed them on either side of her, to support herself on the stone seat. She laid them on her lap. They trembled there. She held them out and looked at them wonderingly. They trembled as she looked. Like an old woman, she said faintly, and let them drop again at her side. For the first time, that morning, the cruel discovery had forced itself on her mind the discovery that her strength was failing her, at the time when she had most confidently trusted to it, 
at the time when she wanted it most. She had felt the surprise of Mr. Bartram's unexpected departure, as if it had been the shock of the severest calamity that could have befallen her. That one check to her hopes, a check which at other times would only have roused the resisting power in her to new efforts, had struck her with as suffocating a terror, had prostrated her with as all-mastering a despair, as if she had been overwhelmed by the crowning disaster of expulsion from St. Crux. But one warning could be read in such a change as this. Into the space of little more than a year, she had crowded the wearing and wasting emotions of a life, the bountiful gifts of health and strength, so prodigally heaped on her by nature, so long abused with impunity, were failing her at last. She looked up at the far, faint blue of the sky. She heard the joyous singing of birds among the ivy that clothed the ruins. Oh, the cold distance of the heavens! Oh, the pitiless happiness of the birds! Oh, the lonely horror of sitting there, and feeling old and weak and worn, in the heyday of her youth! She rose with a last effort of resolution, and tried to keep back the hysterical passion swelling at her heart by moving and looking about her. Rapidly and more rapidly she walked to and fro in the sunshine. The exercise helped her, through the very fatigue that she felt from it. She forced the rising tears desperately back to their sources. She fought with the clinging pain and wrenched it from its hold. Little by little, her mind began to clear again. The despairing fear of herself grew less vividly present to her thoughts. There were reserves of youth and strength in her still to be wasted. There was a spirit sorely wounded, but not yet subdued. She gradually extended the limits of her walk. She gradually recovered the exercise of her observation. At the western extremity, the remains of the monastery were in a less ruinous condition than at the eastern. In certain places, where the stout old walls still stood, repairs had been made at some former time. Roofs of red tile had been laid roughly over four of the ancient cells. Wooden doors had been added, and the old monastic chambers had been used as sheds to hold the multifarious lumber of St. Crux. No padlocks guarded any of the doors. Magdalen had only to push them to let the daylight in on the litter inside. She resolved to investigate the sheds one after the other, not from curiosity, not with the idea of making discoveries of any sort. Her only object was to fill up the vacant time, and to keep the thoughts that unnerved her from returning to her mind. The first shed she opened contained the gardener's utensils, large and small. The second was littered with fragments of broken furniture, empty picture frames of worm-eaten wood, shattered vases, boxes without covers, and books torn from their bindings. As Magdalen turned to leave the shed, after one careless glance round her at the lumber that it contained, her foot struck something on the ground which tinkled against a fragment of china lying near it. She stooped and discovered that the tinkling substance was a rusty key. She picked up the key and looked at it. 
she walked out into the air and considered a little. More old forgotten keys were probably lying about among the lumber in the sheds. What if she collected all she could find and tried them, one after another, in the locks of the cabinets and cupboards now closed against her? Was there chance enough that any one of them might fit to justify her in venturing on the experiment? If the locks at St. Crux were as old-fashioned as the furniture, if there were no protective niceties of modern invention to contend against, there was chance enough beyond all question. Who could say whether the very key in her hand might not be the lost duplicate of one of the keys on the admiral's bunch? In the dearth of all other means of finding the way to her end, the risk was worth running. A flash of the old spirit sparkled in her weary eyes as she turned and re-entered the shed. Half an hour more brought her to the limits of the time which she could venture to allow herself in the open air. In that interval she had searched the sheds from first to last, and found five more keys. Five more chances, she thought to herself, as she hid the keys and hastily returned to the house. After first reporting herself in the housekeeper's room, she went upstairs to remove her bonnet and shawl, taking that opportunity to hide the keys in her bedchamber until night came. They were crusted thick with rust and dirt, but she dared not attempt to clean them until bedtime secluded her from the prying eyes of the servants in the solitude of her room. When the dinner hour brought her, as usual, into personal contact with the admiral, she was at once struck by a change in him. For the first time in her experience, the old gentleman was silent and depressed. He ate less than usual, and he hardly said five words to her from the beginning of the meal to the end. Some unwelcome subject of reflection had evidently fixed itself on his mind, and remained there persistently, in spite of his efforts to shake it off. At intervals through the evening, she wondered with an ever-growing perplexity what the subject could be. At last the lagging hours reached their end, and bedtime came. Before she slept that night, Magdalen had cleaned the keys from all impurities and had oiled the wards to help them smoothly into the locks. The last difficulty that remained was the difficulty of choosing the time when the experiment might be tried with the least risk of interruption and discovery. After carefully considering the question overnight, Magdalen could only resolve to wait and be guided by the events of the next day. The morning came, and for the first time at St. Crux, events justified the trust she had placed in them. The morning came, and the one remaining difficulty that perplexed her was unexpectedly smoothed away by no less a person than the Admiral himself. To the surprise of everyone in the house, he announced at breakfast that he had arranged to start for London in an hour, that he should pass the night in town, and that he might be expected to return to St. Crux in time for dinner on the next day. He volunteered no further explanations to the housekeeper or to anyone else, but it was easy to see that his errand to London was of no ordinary importance in his own estimation. He swallowed his breakfast in a violent hurry, and he was impatiently ready for the carriage before it came to the door. Experience had taught Magdalen to be cautious. 
she waited a little after admiral bartram's departure before she ventured on trying her experiment with the keys it was well she did so mrs drake took advantage of the admiral's absence to review the condition of the apartments on the first floor the results of the investigation by no means satisfied her brooms and dusters were set to work and the housemaids were in and out of the rooms perpetually as long as the daylight lasted the evening passed and still the safe opportunity for which magdalen was on the watch never presented itself bedtime came again and found her placed between the two alternatives of trusting to the doubtful chances of the next morning or of trying the keys boldly in the dead of night in former times she would have made her choice without hesitation she hesitated now but the wreck of her old courage still sustained her and she determined to make the venture at night they kept early hours at st crux if she waited in her room until half-past eleven she would wait long enough at that time she stole out onto the staircase with the keys in her pockets and the candle in her hand on passing the entrance to the corridor on the bedroom floor she stopped and listened no sound of snoring no shuffling of infirm footsteps was to be heard on the other side of the screen she looked round it distrustfully the stone passage was a solitude and the truckle bed was empty her own eyes had shown her old Maisie on his way to the upper regions more than an hour since with a candle in his hand had he taken advantage of his master's absence to enjoy the unaccustomed luxury of sleeping in a room as the thought occurred to her a sound from the further end of the corridor just caught her ear she softly advanced toward it and heard through the door of the last and remotest of the spare bedchambers the veteran's lusty snoring in the room inside the discovery was startling in more senses than one it deepened the impenetrable mystery of the truckle-bed for it showed plainly that old Maisie had no barbarous preference of his own for passing his nights in the corridor he occupied that strange and comfortless sleeping-place purely and entirely on his master's account it was no time for dwelling on the reflections which this conclusion might suggest magdalen retraced her steps along the passage and descended to the first floor passing the doors nearest to her she tried the library first on the staircase and in the corridors she had felt her heart throbbing fast with an unutterable fear but a sense of security returned to her when she found herself within the four walls of the room and when she had closed the door on the ghostly quiet outside the first lock she tried was the lock of the table drawer none of the keys fitted it her next experiment was on the cabinet would the second attempt fail like the first no one of the keys fitted one of the keys with a little patient management turned the lock she looked in eagerly there were open shelves above and one long drawer under them the shelves were devoted to specimens of curious minerals neatly labelled and arranged the drawer was divided into compartments two of the compartments contained papers in the first she discovered nothing but a collection of receipted bills 
In the second she found a heap of business documents, but the writing, yellow with age, was enough of itself to warn her that the trust was not there. She shut the doors of the cabinet, and after locking them again with some little difficulty, proceeded to try the keys in the bookcase cupboards next, before she continued her investigations in the other rooms. The bookcase cupboards were unassailable. The drawers and cupboards in all the other rooms were unassailable. One after another she tried them patiently in regular succession. It was useless. The chance which the cabinet in the library had offered in her favor was the first chance and the last. She went back to her room, seeing nothing but her own gliding shadow, hearing nothing but her own stealthy footfall in the midnight stillness of the house. After mechanically putting the keys away in their former hiding-place, she looked toward her bed and turned away from it, shuddering. The warning remembrance of what she had suffered that morning in the garden was vividly present to her mind. Another chance tried, she thought to herself, and another chance lost. I shall break down again if I think of it, and I shall think of it if I lie awake in the dark. She had brought a work-box with her to St. Crux, as one of the many little things which in her character of a servant it was desirable to possess, and she now opened the box and applied herself resolutely to work. Her want of dexterity with her needle assisted the object she had in view. It obliged her to pay the closest attention to her employment. It forced her thoughts away from the two subjects of all others which she now dreaded most, herself and the future. The next day, as he had arranged, the admiral returned. His visit to London had not improved his spirits. The shadow of some unconquerable doubt still clouded his face. His restless tongue was strangely quiet, while Magdalen waited on him at his solitary meal. That night the snoring resounded once more on the inner side of the screen, and old Maisie was back again in the comfortless truckle-bed. Three more days passed. April came. On the second of the month, returning as unexpectedly as he had departed a week before, Mr. George Bartram reappeared at St. Crux. He came back early in the afternoon, and had an interview with his uncle in the library. The interview over, he left the house again, and was driven to the railway by the groom in time to catch the last train to London that night. The groom noticed, on the road, that Mr. George seemed to be rather pleased than otherwise at leaving St. Crux. He also remarked, on his return, that the admiral swore at him for overdriving the horses, an indication of ill-temper on the part of his master, which he described as being entirely without precedent in all his former experience. Magdalen, in her department of service, had suffered in like manner under the old man's irritable humor. He had been dissatisfied with everything she did in the dining-room, and he had found fault with all the dishes, one after another, from the mutton-broth to the toasted cheese. The next two days passed as usual. On the third day an event happened. In appearance it was nothing more important than a ring at the drawing-room bell. In reality it was the forerunner of approaching catastrophe. 
the formidable herald of the end. It was Magdalen's business to answer the bell. On reaching the drawing-room door, she knocked as usual. There was no reply. After again knocking, and again receiving no answer, she ventured into the room and was instantly met by a current of cold air flowing full on her face. The heavy sliding door in the opposite wall was pushed back, and the arctic atmosphere of freezer bones was pouring unhindered into the empty room. She waited near the door, doubtful what to do next. It was certainly the drawing-room bell that had rung, and no other. She waited, looking through the open doorway opposite, down the wilderness of the dismantled hall. A little consideration satisfied her that it would be best to go downstairs again, and wait there for a second summons from the bell. On turning to leave the room, she happened to look back once more, and exactly at that moment she saw the door open at the opposite extremity of the banqueting hall the door leading into the first of the apartments in the east wing. A tall man came out, wearing his great coat and his hat, and rapidly approached the drawing-room. His gait betrayed him, while he was still too far off for his features to be seen. Before he was quite halfway across the hall, Magdalen had recognized the Admiral. He looked, not irritated only, but surprised as well, at finding his parlour-maid waiting for him in the drawing-room, and inquired, sharply and suspiciously, what she wanted there. Magdalen replied that she had come there to answer the bell. His face cleared a little when he heard the explanation. "'Yes, yes, to be sure,' he said. "'I did ring, and then I forgot it.' He pulled the sliding-door back into its place as he spoke. "'Coals,' he resumed impatiently, pointing to the empty scuttle. I rang for coals. Magdalen went back to the kitchen regions. After communicating the admiral's order to the servant whose special duty it was to attend to the fires, she returned to the pantry, and, gently closing the door, sat down alone to think. It had been her impression in the drawing-room, and it was her impression still, that she had accidentally surprised Admiral Bartram on a visit to the East Rooms, which, for some urgent reason of his own, he wished to keep a secret. Haunted day and night by the one dominant idea that now possessed her, she leaped all logical difficulties at a bound, and at once associated the suspicion of a secret proceeding on the Admiral's part with the kindred suspicion which pointed to him as the depository of the secret trust. Up to this time, it had been her settled belief that he kept all his important documents in one or other of the suite of rooms which he happened to be occupying for the time being. Why, she now asked herself, with a sudden distrust of the conclusion which had hitherto satisfied her mind, why might he not lock some of them up in the other rooms as well? The remembrance of the keys still concealed in their hiding-place in her room sharpened her sense of the reasonableness of this new view. With one unimportant exception, those keys had all failed when she tried them in the rooms on the north side of the house. Might they not succeed with the cabinets and cupboards in the east rooms, on which she had never tried them, or thought of trying them yet? 
if there was a chance, however small, of turning them to better account than she had turned them thus far, it was a chance to be tried. If there was a possibility, however remote, that the trust might be hidden in any one of the locked repositories in the east wing, it was a possibility to be put to the test. When? Her own experience answered the question. At the time when no prying eyes were open, and no accidents were to be feared, when the house was quiet, in the dead of night. She knew enough of her changed self to dread the enervating influence of delay. She determined to run the risk headlong that night. More blunders escaped her when dinner-time came. The admiral's criticisms on her waiting at table were sharper than ever. His hardest words inflicted no pain on her. She scarcely heard him. Her mind was dull to every sense but the sense of the coming trial. The evening which had passed slowly to her on the night of her first experiment with the keys passed quickly now. When bedtime came, bedtime took her by surprise. She waited longer on this occasion than she had waited before. The admiral was at home. He might alter his mind and go downstairs again, after he had gone up to his room. He might have forgotten something in the library, and might return to fetch it. Midnight struck from the clock in the servants' hall before she ventured out of her room, with the keys again in her pocket, with the candle again in her hand. At the first of the stairs on which she set her foot to descend, an all-mastering hesitation, an unintelligible shrinking from some peril unknown, seized her on a sudden. She waited and reasoned with herself. She had recoiled from no sacrifices. She had yielded to no fears, in carrying out the stratagem by which she had gained admission to St. Crux. And now— when the long array of difficulties at the outset had been patiently conquered, now, when by sheer force of resolution the starting-point was gained, she hesitated to advance. "'I shrank from nothing to get here,' she said to herself. "'What madness possesses me that I shrink now?' Every pulse in her quickened at the thought, with an animating shame that nerved her to go on. She descended the stairs from the third floor to the second, from the second to the first, without trusting herself to pause again within easy reach of her own room. In another minute she had reached the end of the corridor, had crossed the vestibule, and had entered the drawing-room. It was only when her grasp was on the heavy brass handle of the sliding door, it was only at the moment before she pushed the door back, that she waited to take breath. The banqueting hall was close on the other side of the wooden partition against which she stood. Her excited imagination felt the death-like chill of it flowing over her already. She pushed back the sliding door a few inches, and stopped in momentary alarm. When the admiral had closed it in her presence that day, she had heard no noise. When old Maisie had opened it to show her the rooms in the east wing, she had heard no noise. Now, in the night silence, she noticed for the first time that the door made a sound, a dull, rushing sound, like the wind. She roused herself and pushed it further back, pushed it halfway into the hollow chamber in the wall constructed to receive it. 
she advanced boldly into the gap and met the night view of the banqueting hall face to face the moon was rounding the southern side of the house her paling beams streamed through the nearer windows and lay in long strips of slanting light on the marble pavement of the hall the black shadows of the pediments between each window alternating with the strips of light heightened the wan glare of the moonshine on the floor toward its lower end the hall melted mysteriously into darkness the ceiling was lost to view the yawning fireplace the overhanging mantelpiece the long row of battle pictures above were all swallowed up in night but one visible object was discernible besides the gleaming windows and the moon-striped floor midway in the last and furthest of the strips of light the tripod rose erect on its gaunt black legs like a monster called to life by the moon a monster rising through the light and melting invisibly into the upper shadows of the hall far and near all sound lay dead drowned in the stagnant cold the soothing hush of night was awful here the deep abysses of darkness hid abysses of silence more immeasurable still she stood motionless in the doorway with straining eyes with straining ears she looked for some moving thing she listened for some rising sound and looked and listened in vain a quick ceaseless shivering ran through her from head to foot the shivering of fear or the shivering of cold the bare doubt roused her resolute will now she thought advancing a step through the doorway or never i'll count the strips of moonlight three times over and cross the hall one two three four five one two three four five one two three four five as the final number passed her lips at the third time of counting she crossed the hall looking for nothing listening for nothing one hand holding the candle the other mechanically grasping the folds of her dress she sped ghost-like down the length of the ghostly place she reached the door of the first of the eastern rooms opened it and ran in the sudden relief of attaining a refuge the sudden entrance into a new atmosphere overpowered her for the moment she had just time to put the candle safely on a table before she dropped giddy and breathless into the nearest chair little by little she felt the rest quieting her in a few minutes she became conscious of the triumph of having won her way to the east rooms in a few minutes she was strong enough to rise from the chair to take the keys from her pocket and to look round her the first objects of furniture in the room which attracted her attention were an old bureau of carved oak and a heavy buhl table with a cabinet attached she tried the bureau first it looked the likeliest receptacle for papers of the two three of the keys proved to be of a size to enter the lock but none of them would turn it the bureau was unassailable she left it and paused to trim the wick of the candle before she tried the buhl cabinet next at the moment when she raised her hand to the candle she heard the stillness of the banqueting hall shudder with the terror of a sound a sound faint and momentary 
like the distant rushing of the wind. The sliding door in the drawing-room had moved. Which way had it moved? Had an unknown hand pushed it back in its socket further than she had pushed it, or pulled it to again and closed it? The horror of being shut out all night, by some undiscoverable agency, from the life of the house, was stronger in her than the horror of looking across the banqueting-hall. She made desperately for the door of the room. It had fallen to silently after her when she had come in, but it was not closed. She pulled it open and looked. The sight that met her eyes rooted her, panic-stricken to the spot. Close to the first of the row of windows, counting from the drawing-room, and full in the gleam of it, she saw a solitary figure. It stood motionless, rising out of the furthest strip of moonlight on the floor. As she looked, it suddenly disappeared. In another instant she saw it again, in the second strip of moonlight, lost it again, saw it in the third strip, lost it once more, and saw it in the fourth. Moment by moment it advanced, now mysteriously lost in the shadow, now suddenly visible again in the light, until it reached the fifth and nearest strip of moonlight. There it paused, and strayed aside slowly to the middle of the hall. It stopped at the tripod, and stood, shivering audibly in the silence, with its hands raised over the dead ashes, in the action of warming them at a fire. It turned back again, moving down the path of the moonlight, stopped at the fifth window, turned once more, and came on softly through the shadow straight to the place where Magdalen stood. Her voice was dumb. Her will was helpless. Every sense in her but the seeing sense was paralyzed. The seeing sense, held fast in the fetters of its own terror, looked unchangeably straight forward, as it had looked from the first. There she stood in the doorway, full in the path of the figure advancing on her through the shadow, nearer and nearer, step by step. It came close. The bonds of horror that held her burst asunder when it was within arm's length. She started back. The light of the candle on the table fell full on its face and showed her Admiral Bartram. A long grey dressing-gown was wrapped round him. His head was uncovered. His feet were bare. In his left hand he carried his little basket of keys. He passed Magdalen slowly, his lips whispering without intermission, his open eyes staring straight before him with the glassy stare of death. His eyes revealed to her the terrifying truth. He was walking in his sleep. The terror of seeing him as she saw him now was not the terror she had felt when her eyes first lighted on him, an apparition in the moonlight, a specter in the ghostly hall. This time she could struggle against the shock. She could feel the depth of her own fear. He passed her and stopped in the middle of the room. Magdalen ventured near enough to him to be within reach of his voice as he muttered to himself. She ventured nearer still and heard the name of her dead husband fall distinctly from the sleepwalker's lips. No, he said in the low, monotonous tones of a dreamer talking in his sleep. My good fellow, no, take it back again. It worries me day and night. I don't know where it's safe. I don't know where to put it. 
take it back, Noel, take it back. As those words escaped him, he walked to the Buell cabinet. He sat down in the chair placed before it, and searched in the basket among his keys. Magdalen softly followed him, and stood behind his chair, waiting with the candle in her hand. He found the key, and unlocked the cabinet. Without an instant's hesitation, he drew out a drawer, the second of a row. The one thing in the drawer was a folded letter. He removed it and put it down before him on the table. "'Take it back, Noel,' he repeated mechanically. "'Take it back!' Magdalen looked over his shoulder and read these lines, traced in her husband's handwriting, at the top of the letter. "'To be kept in your own possession.' and to be opened by yourself only on the day of my decease, Noel Vanstone. She saw the words plainly, with the admiral's name and the admiral's address written under them. The trust within reach of her hand! The trust traced to its hiding-place at last! She took one step forward, to steal round his chair, and to snatch the letter from the table. At the instant when she moved, he took it up once more, locked the cabinet, and rising, turned and faced her. In the impulse of the moment, she stretched out her hand toward the hand in which he held the letter. The yellow candlelight fell full on him. The awful death in life of his face, the mystery of the sleeping body, moving in unconscious obedience to the dreaming mind, daunted her. Her hand trembled and dropped again at her side. He put the key of the cabinet back in the basket and crossed the room to the bureau with the basket in one hand and the letter in the other. Magdalen set the candle on the table again and watched him. As he had opened the cabinet, so he now opened the bureau. Once more Magdalen stretched out her hand, and once more she recoiled before the mystery and the terror of his sleep. He put the letter in a drawer at the back of the bureau, and closed the heavy oaken lid again. Yes, he said. Safer there, as you say, Noel, safer there. So he spoke. So time after time, the words that betrayed him revealed the dead man living and speaking again in the dream. Had he locked the bureau? Magdalen had not heard the lock turn. As he slowly moved away, Walking back once more toward the middle of the room, she tried the lid. It was locked. That discovery made, she looked to see what he was doing next. He was leaving the room again, with the basket of keys in his hand. When her first glance overtook him, he was crossing the threshold of the door. Some inscrutable fascination possessed her. Some mysterious attraction drew her after him, in spite of herself. She took up the candle and followed him mechanically, as if she too were walking in her sleep. One behind the other, in slow and noiseless progress, they crossed the banqueting hall. One behind the other, they passed through the drawing-room, and along the corridor, and up the stairs. She followed him to his own door. He went in and shut it behind him softly. She stopped and looked toward the truckle-bed. It was pushed aside at the foot, some little distance away from the bedroom door. Who had moved it? She held the candle close and looked toward the pillow, with a sudden curiosity and a sudden doubt. 
the chuckle bed was empty. End of chapter 4, Seventh Scene, Part 1 Recording by Linda Lee Paquette